0: Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul.
1: Episode 10!
0: Woohoo! Woo! Woo! I can't believe it's episode 10.
1: I know. It's bananas. I mean, at the same time, 10 doesn't seem like that high of a number. Like, I know there are a lot of podcasts that have like 254 episodes, but... It feels like a big deal to me. And behind the scenes, this is like the last episode of a long day of recording. So we're like high key excited. We're full of banter and we're ready to blow your socks off.
0: Yeah, it's it's an exciting one. There are some pieces I can't wait to uh, tell you about from my side of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, this one and I, I was telling you this. I have done deep dives on it so many times, like through the years, (laughs) that I really didn't even feel like I had to look anything up because this one is one that I come back to all the time and I don't really know why. But yeah, looking forward to talking about this case.
0: Before we jump in, though, Mm -hmm. to report to you, it stormed, which rarely happens here and especially in wildfire season.
1: Yeah, that's amazing
0: and i was actually working on some research for the episode and i heard just like like what <laughs> is that what is that noise <laughs> so then i like got up and opened my patio door and it was like oh, rain
1: alien sound
0: and then thunder and lightning
1: amazing
0: and then every single outside person in i know shawshank
1: redemption <laughs>
0: Uh, unintentionally, yes, because I went on a walk the next morning before work and it rained on me again. <laughs> <laughs> and I embraced it. I was like, you know what? The thing I missed the most about the South is the rain, and I am not going to complain about being rained on right now.
1: Really? You miss the rain?
0: Oh my God. Thunderstorms and hurricanes. There's a feeling to them. There's a smell to them. There's, uh, just a good thunderstorm.
1: I mean, I suppose thunderstorm, yes. But I have to say, one of the things I loved most about California was not having lots of rain. I mean, wildfires notwithstanding.
0: I'm only happy when it
1: rains. Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let the rain drown down and the sun. Let it wash away my city. (laughs)
1: Well, we had the soggiest, crappiest, wettest summer here, so I'm so glad for fall. I'm ready for crisp, non-soggy air. I'm ready for all of it. And I got a new coat. I'm bringing the good banter. I got a new coat, and it is gorgeous. I love it. I mean, not, like, aesthetically gorgeous, but it's it's gorgeous to be inside, and it's (laughs) got a nice, like, silky fake fur thing in a hood with fur and Bowdoin USA, we will rep you all the way. So call me.
0: <laughs> I had a moment not getting rained on, but like two days ago, it's been so hot and so mm. smoky off and on. And I went out for my morning walk and I I was not looking forward to it. I was in a pretty frustrated mood having been so rudely woken up by my alarm that i set
1: <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were gonna say a text for me
0: <laughs> and i don't know how to describe it other than it was one of the most beautiful mornings of my life it like i was on like i was on drugs or something it, the sky was so blue and there was like a big rain cloud and it it was fall it was crisp like there was a chill in the air the wind had coolness in it and not heat like a hairdryer (laughs) and everything was beautiful and i was just like this is the most beautiful morning
1: ah amazing i love it i do love fall it's not my favorite season well i don't know it's up there but not (laughs) in the basic white girl way. Although I do love pumpkin spice and I don't care who knows it.
0: I am a take it or leave it pumpkin spicer. (laughs) It's not a flavor I seek out.
1: It's just so good. I, I stock up during the fall. I stock up on bottles of pumpkin spice seasoning or pumpkin pie seasoning, I guess it's called usually because I love it. And I also stock up on boxes of Pumpkin puree, because you never know when you're going to want a good pumpkin bread. I mean, it's good all year round. So I love pumpkin. I love pumpkin spice. I love all of that.
0: I'm going the apple route. Mm. Apple cinnamon all day. Some hot spiced apple rum. Mm -hmm. Even apple wine. If I force myself into the hellscape of going up to the apple orchards with all of the crowds. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I did that with the girls the first year that we moved back because what kind of a parent are you if you're in New England and you don't take your kids apple picking (laughs) so we did that but yeah I mean I like apples conceptually to eat them I don't know
0: Oh, and not like I want to have an apple. What I'm talking about is an apple fritter, an apple turnover, like baked sugary apple goods.
1: Okay. Okay. Then we're on the same page. And in New England, I don't know. I think it's only New England, but there's a thing called the apple cider donut that is big.
0: I would happily have that right this second.
1: (laughs) Same. Yeah. Fall can come. I allow it. Yeah. Yeah. Not
0: sold on winter, but I'm here for fall.
1: Oh, winter can suck it.
0: My winter so much easier, I cannot complain.
1: I mean, winter in California is awesome. Winter here
0: No, that's Raspberry. real winter.
1: <laughs> Raspberry to the whole affair. <laughs> I mean, it's still better than muggy ass summer in some ways. I mean, I'm just getting old. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I can't really take the cold, but also I don't want to sweat. I'm just, I just need California weather, Bay Area.
0: Oh yeah, I was like, mm, you're gonna sweat here too. Yeah, <laughs> not the humidity, but the
1: hot parts. Mm. I mean, it's still better than New England weather, but yeah, Bay Area. That's that's my that's my jam.
0: But I've been all summer, this summer, I've been, like, telling myself, there's not humidity. You need to remember that. Because, like, I went out with friends the other day, and we ate, you know, on the porch of a restaurant. But a covered porch, and there was fans. And it was, like, it didn't matter that it was, like, 96, because in the shade of the porch, it was very comfortable. (laughs) I was, like, I have to remember the benefits of dry heat.
1: (laughs) You do have to remember those benefits, because humidity. I mean it doesn't it could be 45 degrees out. If it's humid, I'm sweating just everywhere. It's gross. It's awful.
0: Yeah, Violence but. against my person. <laughs> 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 but fall is approaching.
1: Uh well, in podcast world it is fall.
0: I hope. I mean, you know, some Halloweens are hot here still. So we're speaking to you from the past. November Shouldn't be hot, but I've had some pretty warm Halloweens. I know in a previous episode, we talked about costumes, and that's the real hit and miss of do you have a costume that can support cold weather or hot weather?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In California, I remember both. There were times that, like, trying to deal, getting the kids all dressed and ready and, like, in and out of bucket seats and costumes and all the bullshit that goes with that, like, sweating my ass off, and then other times it was, like, rainy and cold and gross.
0: Mm, I am excited for For a bit bit of rainy and cold.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in California, it's a nice, you know, respite from the seething hellscape of of, uh, wildfire season.
0: But don't forget that our really bad wildfire crisis at work was Thanksgiving.
1: Oh, I forgot about that. So we went through that together.
0: It can go long into the year. So I was hoping that the rain we got this week, I was like, oh, please be the start of an early fall. And a, I say a wet fall, but now that so much is burned at Tahoe, I'm sure that's going to be a nightmare for mudslides and landslides.
1: What a mess.
0: Yeah. Who needs infrastructure and a Green New Deal?
1: Yeah. Whatever. I got my Hummer and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: Get that right. Hummer. <laughs> My oil, Derek.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at pretending to be other people. I'm not good at it. I can barely manage myself most days. <laughs> uh, all right. We followed it up now. You ready?
0: I am very ready.
1: Okay. Well... This week's crime takes us all the way to the other side of the globe in New Zealand, or Aotearoa in Maori. Famous for the rich indigenous Maori culture, Crowded House, people under 35 pause and go Google that shit, uh, Kiwi, the bird and the people, singer, songwriter, and all-around delight, Lord, Flight of the Concords, the musical comedy duo, and the HBO show. Badass Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. And most significantly, the band OTC, performers of one of my favorite songs of all time, How Bizarre. Now, Andrew, can you cut in just like a little clip of that song there? Because it's
0: amazing. You probably we'll don't see, know it. It's awesome. I, I don't know it, but I also don't know how they listen for copyrights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, that.
1: Um, anyway...
0: One quick aside, yeah, because I just have to uh their prime minister is an ex-Mormon, just like me. And we gotta support each other.
1: I didn't know that. Wow.
0: Yep, She's one awesome. of the best.
1: Amazing.
0: Sorry for my ex-Mormon peep. What up? <laughs>
1: Okay, well, we're going way back, though. I'm talking—these are all more recent New Zealand references. But we're going back to the 1950s, in 1954 to be exact. Just a year after Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest, bringing New Zealand to the fore internationally— New Zealand at the time was a quiet, out-of-the-way sort of place. It was known for its tremendously high standard of living. Uh, Unemployment was almost zero at that time. And it's kind of sleepy lifestyle. Most businesses closed at 5 p.m. And business centers were pretty much deserted, eerily so, on the weekends, at least to outsiders. Kiwis, the European-descended ones anyway... Prided themselves on the country's prosperity, wholesome values, and overall contentment. Halcyon days for sure. So, on June 22, 1954, when Honora Reaper went on a hike in Victoria Park, located in the hills above Christchurch, Maori name Otautahi, she probably would have had no capacity to even conceive the horror that was about to befall her. That morning, when her daughter Pauline invited her to join her and her friend Juliet on a hike, she may have even seen it as a sign that their recent troubles were easing up. See, Pauline and Juliet had become fast friends a little over two years earlier when Juliet and her family moved to Christchurch from the UK. Pauline was about thirteen, and Juliet was around twelve. And they bonded over their experiences with serious ailments that limited their normal childhood activities and often left them missing school for long periods of time. And this is so easy to see. Intense friendships in those tween years, I think, are really common. I can relate to that totally, like just as a teen girl and those friendships that you make at that time. But for Pauline and Juliet, it soon became more They spent huge amounts of time together and at the exclusion of pretty much everything else. They romanticized their illnesses and came to believe that their shared experience gave them kind of a special bond. At first, this probably seemed like a positive thing for their parents. I mean, who doesn't want meaningful relationships for their kids, particularly these two girls who, again, had a lot of physical struggles And together, they were very creative. They wrote plays and stories and even developed a language of their own. Pauline spent a lot of time at the Holmes, who were more well-off than the working-class Reapers, even spending most of one summer at their house. But if their parents initially encouraged the friendship, that eventually turned to concern as the girls became more and more enmeshed psychologically. The parents noticed that the girls would become hysterical when they were separated from one another, no matter the reason. Juliet even became physically ill at times when they couldn't be together. Eventually the parents began to look for ways to separate them or try to give them breaks from one another. And Juliet was sent to a sanatorium for three months at one point, ostensibly for treatment of tuberculosis, which is the ailment that she had, but probably also to give the girls some space from one another. But Pauline wrote to Juliet every day while she was away, and when she returned home, their ardor was just as intense. And now I say ardor, and I say that kind of intentionally, and you might be wondering if there was a sexual component to their relationship. (laughs) I say that rhetorically. Andrew, you might have been wondering, listener you may have been wondering and you know, it's a common question. A lot of people have asked that over time and we'll talk about that more in a bit, but both girls denied having a sexual relationship and there's not any conclusive evidence that they did. You know, one of the four kinds of love, according to the Greeks is known as philia and philia is used a lot in true crime because of its use in psychology, pedophilia, necrophilia, paraphilia. Like it doesn't usually have a good connotation. Mm Um, But the Greeks used it to mean the highest form of love, a deep and abiding love that non-lovers or um, non-romantic lovers have. And, you know, I don't know, but I think that's what we have here. Philia combined with some elements of obsession. Mm -hmm. Anyway, things came to a head when Juliet's parents separated and began divorce proceedings Her father had recently resigned his position at the local university, you know, for reasons that were not related to any of this. And so it was decided that the parents would return to the U.K. separately um, and Juliet would be sent to South Africa to live with an aunt and uncle. And this seems an incredibly awful way to help a teenager deal with the divorce of parents. And it was. (laughs) It definitely was. Like, I mean, I don't think this is something that would probably happen now. But remember, Juliet had tuberculosis, and at that time, um, it was believed, and I I mean, I think it was probably true, the warmer climates were better for her health. And sending kids to live with veritable strangers was kind of a thing with upper middle class British people, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I don't mean to generalize here, but it just wasn't uncommon, especially at that time. So, you know, I think it went over just about how you would expect it to go over with girls who became hysterical when they had to sleep in their own houses. They were hysterical. And, you know, as I was reading more and more, I found, I found information about how Juliet's parents had essentially encouraged the girls to think that maybe Pauline could go to South Africa. So I, I think what happened, the girls were kind of traumatized by this they began, you know, kind of coming up with ways that they could stay together. And so they came up with the idea that Pauline could go to South Africa with Juliet. Now, I don't think that Juliet's parents planted that seed in their mind. I think they came up with that together. It was basically they would not be separated and, you know, they didn't Mm -hmm. want to be separated. But I think that Juliet's parents let them believe that they might go along with that plan. And so what that did then was kind of put the focus on um Pauline's mom as the bad guy in that situation. In yeah. reality, would Juliet's parents have gone along with that? Probably not. I mean, the whole thing, I think as an adult, seems patently ludicrous. Like who would let their kid move to not only another country but like a really far away country? But again, the girls at this point kind of had their own private world. They communicated. They had their own language. They developed a religion that was just the two of them. So they really felt that they had this bond, this special private world of their own. And so I think they're, you know, we'll talk about this more again. There was some element of delusion, but they they felt like they went into this separate world together. And so, you know, again... At this point, they were 15 and 16. They're not thinking clearly. Um, I think unintentionally, Juliet's parents kind of set Pauline's parents, specifically her mom, up as the impediment to them being together. And it kind of went from there. So Pauline and Juliet came up with a plan to murder Pauline's mom and then eliminate kind of, in their minds, the one obstacle to them having this life and it wasn't just going to South Africa that was kind of the first step but in their fantasy world they would go to South Africa and from there they would go to Hollywood and they would write, they would be in the movies or they would write novels, they had this kind of idea of where they wanted to go and they did have this creative life together when that creative energy got funneled into this plan it kind of took this dark turn Mm -hmm. and so... On the morning of June twenty-second, nineteen fifty-four, and again, we're in the southern hemisphere, so this is the winter. The three of them, Honora and Pauline and Juliet, go to Victoria Park and they they, you know, are prepared for a nice, kind of wholesome family day. And again, I can really imagine Honora thinking, Oh, maybe we've rounded a corner, maybe we've made, you know, gotten through yeah. to them. And they went, they had lunch at a tea kiosk, they call them, and everything that I found, but just a little cafe, you know. And then they start off on their walk, and within, I think, maybe about 300 feet into the path, after they had had lunch, the girls took out a brick that they had put in an old silk stocking. That's what they decided to use to kill her. And I think they threw something in the path to kind of, Trick Honora into bending over to get something, and when she was bent over, they bludgeoned her to death. And I believe you might know the exact number. It was something like forty-five blows to the head. But it's not yeah, easy it's crazy. to, yeah, it's not easy to kill someone that way, especially you're a teenage girl. So they bludgeoned her to death, and I don't know too much about what their long game plan was, but at that point, they took the the brick and the stocking and hid it in some bushes like off the path a little ways and then they ran back to that tea kiosk that they had been at not very long before and were crying and claimed to the woman who worked there that uh, Honora had f- taken a fall and they were covered in blood and hysterical. So the husband of the woman who ran the tea kiosk, went out to see what had happened, expecting to find someone who had fallen and and give assistance. And immediately what he found didn't line up with the girl's story at all. It It was pretty clear, I think, that foul play was involved. And from there, it didn't take long before the investigators got involved and started piecing together what happened. They found the brick that was hidden in the shrubbery, And when they separated and questioned the girls, the girls very quickly admitted to what had happened. Again, very quickly, investigators realized that something was not right in this story. Honora had lacerations all around her head, her neck, her face. She had defensive wounds on her hands and her arms. And so when they talked to the girls, the girls confessed to what had happened. And investigators got warrants and did searches on their homes and they found diaries and the diaries talked extensively about planning. And so at that point they knew the history, the kind of Mm -hmm. obsession with one another. It was at that time then that investigators began questioning, was there a sexual relationship here? And I think, you know, the girls always denied it, but again, I think that's really just the culture and the time it, at the time being gay was a crime it was considered a mental illness and i think for most people it was so hard to imagine that two girls could do something so vicious so cold-blooded it was planned so there had to be some reason something that people could understand or kind of you know latch onto that could explain this aberration at the time But again, I think it's just, it speaks to that time and that limited understanding. For me, having been a teen girl, not that I could ever imagine killing my parents or killing anyone, but that kind of intense friendship, that's a thing, you know? And then you add on to that, for Juliet, the breaking up of her home life. So the parents were separated because the mom had an affair. So there was turbulence at home. For Pauline, I think there was this kind of shame. She came from a more working class family. Um, Juliet's family was educated and more well-to-do. And so I think there was some class stuff going on there. And, you know, I think most people can relate to that sense when you're a teen and you start understanding your parents as people and, you, you know, you have moments where you feel embarrassed about them or even ashamed. And, you know, so I can just see all of these forces kind of coming together. And then you add the layer of them always being outsiders because of their illness and having this special bond. And it just seems like this kind of conflation of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, But from there, again, they were put on trial. It was a big media circus because again, there were a lot of salacious details. And one thing that you might know, if you know about this case is that it's usually talked about as the Parker home case. And I've intentionally talked about them as Honora and and Pauline Reaper and I do that because that was the name that they went by Pauline's father's last name was Reaper and they lived together but during the trial the government found out that Honora and and Pauline's father were not married and so they forced them throughout the trial to start going by Parker which was her mom's maiden name and I mean again I think it just speaks to this time of like They wouldn't even let her have her identity, you know, Yeah. Um, and, and took that identity away from her. But that's just an aside. The trial was a sensation. There was a lot of speculation. There was a lot of rumors. And, you know, New Zealand, even now, doesn't have a huge population at the time. They had an even smaller population. So, you know, a lot of people knew everyone's business. But in the end... They were convicted that same year, and they were too young to be considered for the death penalty, and so essentially they were tried as juveniles, and each of them spent five years in prison, and then they were released after that. And a lot of reports say that one of the conditions of their release was that they could never see one another again, and that is not true. Someone from that time spoke, someone who worked in the government at that time, has spoken out and said that wasn't true. Um, But by the time Juliet was released, her father was living in Italy. He was a physicist, a pretty famous one. And so Mm -hmm. he was at another university in Italy. So she was released and lived in Italy. And um, Pauline was released and had to live for a time in New Zealand as part of her. The condition of her release was observation. But then she later relocated to the UK. And so they went on to really have pretty normal lives. I know you're going to talk about that. But I think the result for the community, for the country, for Christchurch, was that it was kind of the end of an innocence there. Again, mm-hmm. this understanding that young girls, which even now are portrayed as in a certain way in the media, young girls are—I mean, this is a time of, like, sugar and spice and everything nice, right, is how girls are perceived— and so for a community and a culture to wrap their brains around something premeditated, something very, like, cold-blooded, calculated, it, it, was, it was a big deal there. And I think it came at the same time that rock and roll was starting to spread and ideas about—I think this is around the time that really— being a teenager became a thing. You know, there was a time when mm-hmm. the concept of teenager didn't even exist. This is around the time that it's becoming understood that it's this distinct period of development. So, you know, it it means a lot, I think, in New Zealand, this crime and, and how it changed the perceptions about girls, teens, crime, all of that, and there is still considered one of the you know worst most um notorious crimes
0: i thought i most foul was right there oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's why you do all of like the fancy transitions and stuff andrew
0: <laughs> you paused at most and i was like is she gonna say it <laughs>
1: Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This case in the 50s in New Zealand has managed to have quite a pop culture impact. One major piece is, of course, the 1994 Peter Jackson directed Heavenly Creatures. So the film was not just the debut for the incredible, iconic, I'll never let you go, Jack, Kate Winslet. (laughs) It was also the debut for Melanie Linsky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some folks might not know Melanie by name, but you for sure know her work, and she deserves her flowers. So just very quickly... (laughs) She's been in so many things. Ever After, Rose Red, Detroit Rock City, But I'm a Cheerleader, Coyote Ugly, Sweet Home Alabama, Up in the Air, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Two and a Half Men, Castle Rock, and Mrs. America. Yeah. And that's just a piece.
1: Yeah, she's amazing.
0: So so it's easy to be like, well, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet, of course. But Melanie Linsky is a staple in Hollywood. So... I wouldn't be so hyperbolic (laughs) as to say that the impact these women have had on culture is just because of Heavenly Creatures. But it's not a reach to say that Hollywood is a very fickle industry, and this debut launched them on a path that led them where they are. So Kate even had this to say in an interview with the New Zealand Herald in 2015. Everything that I know I learned on that film People assumed I knew what I was doing, but I hadn't got a fucking clue. (laughs) I'd never been on a set before in my life. It was the first role I'd ever auditioned for. When I turned up, I had to go along with this thing that everyone thought I knew what I was doing. They also hoped in some way I'd be able to hold the hand of Melanie Linsky, who had been a speaking flower in a school play once, and that was about it. So the two of us really (laughs) learned on the job. So... Kate herself recently credits the movie as, you know, a huge part of her career. So before we get into the movie itself, I wanted to take a step back in time. So before that, the murder was first fictionalized in 1958, so just four years after the murder, in the evil friendship by Marianne Meeker, using the pseudonym Vin Packer. Now, as an interesting aside, Meeker is an American writer who along with Teresa Torres, is credited with launching the lesbian pulp fiction genre, the only accessible novels on that theme in the 1950s. So under the name Vin Packer, she wrote mystery and crime novels. As Anne Aldrich, she wrote nonfiction books about lesbians. And as M.E. Kerr, she wrote young adult fiction. And also as Mary James, she has written books for younger kids. So she's won multiple awards... It's been described by the New York Times Book Review as one of the grandmasters of young adult fiction. And I know this is an aside, but I'm so happy to now know about her. She's currently 94 years old and a part of queer history and queer culture that I've never known until now. So cool. And so I loved this quote from her. She said, I remember being depressed by all the neatly tied-up, happy-ending stories, the abundance of winners, the themes of winning, solving, finding. When around me, it didn't seem that easy. So I write with a different feeling when I write for young adults. I guess I write for myself at that age. That's deep. So then, also in 1958, Beryl Bainbridge completed her first novel, entitled Harriet Said. And it was about the case. And so if you like me, also don't know who Bainbridge is. She's listed as one of the 10 greatest British writers since 1945, and she's won numerous awards. And this book was rejected by several publishers in the 50s, and it wasn't published until 1972. And because I love a petty diva, (laughs) (laughs) publication in the first edition Included this rejection on the flyleaf. <laughs> what repulsive little creatures you have made the two central characters! Repulsive, almost beyond belief. And I think the scene in which the two men and the two girls met in the Czar's house is too indecent and unpleasant, even for these lax days. What is more, I fear that even now a respectable printer would not print it.
1: Damn!
0: And so that I was really included. Feel... <laughs> So that was printed in the first edition. Now, I love tangents. So, Kirsten, if you'll indulge me, it reminded me of my favorite historical rejection letter. And it was for Moby Dick. uh, Which, staying on the queer theme, is a book that no one told me was an explicit gay love story. So when I read it, it blew my mind. Like, queer history is not discussed ever and everything is so straight washed i mean it is so gay but anyway moby uh, dick yes
1: you're educating me
0: it's a pretty uh, the parts about the whale are pretty boring but it is a pretty good book there's just long meandering passages about whales
1: and gray water
0: but um but the rejection letter so i'm gonna quickly go through it because it's so good my dear sir, we have read with great interest your intriguing effort of Moby Dick, or The Whale, and while it fortified us greatly, despite the somewhat vision impairing length of the manuscript, we were wondering if changing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry.
0: We were wondering if changing certain of the story's elements might not buoy its purchases at the shop, as it were. First, we must ask does it have to be a whale? <laughs> <laughs> While this is a rather delightful and somewhat esoteric plot device, we recommend an antagonist with a more popular visage among the younger readers. For instance, could the captain not be struggling with the depravity towards young, perhaps voluptuous maidens? (laughs) We're sure that your most genial friend and fine author, Nathaniel Hawthorne, would be instructive in this matter. Mr. Hawthorne has much experience introducing a delicate bosom heaving with burned secrets into popular literature. I'm afraid that while we can appreciate the hardiness with which Captain Ahab pursues his passion for fishing, we would not find it estimably helpful on your behalf to leave out his personal belief system. Let us not identify one faith over another in such sense that were if it were to prove an offense to our readers, this would most certainly thin shillings from our purse. If this development affects your character's motivations disagreeably, then would it not suffice to make him a Lutheran? Everyone knows that Lutherans always have a bee in their bonnet." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there are not quite so many of them in London. Bentley and son appeals to your more libertine nature and request that you discard the employment of thou and thee, as it will put the reader too much in mind of the Vicar's sermon on Sunday. And thus, all in all, we were quite delighted with your previous efforts, Type B and Omu. They were just the thing, what with the cannibalism and native non-state of dress and all. We remain hopeful for more of the same. Yours in commercial endeavors, Peter J. Bentley, editor.
1: This is from McSweeney's. No. This is not real.
0: So I've done some digging, and it might, so it is historical, <laughs> and it might be an inside joke between the editors and um, Herman Melville.
1: Oh. But it is my a God. real letter. <laughs> that is bananas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so thank you. Kirsten and listeners for indulging me in that. It's just, it popped into my mind immediately when I read the rejection letter <laughs> for the other book.
1: That is incredible.
0: So back to the case at hand, the next adaptation was Mary Orr in Reginald Denham's 1967 play, Minor Murder, followed by the 1971 French film, Mais Nous Nuit Des Livres, Pas du Mal, which translates to... Don't deliver us from evil. So, and then in 1992, there was a New Zealand play, Daughters of Heaven. And that catches us up back to 1994 uh, with Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. So Jackson is a New Zealander himself and was more than aware of the high profile case that fascinated the country for more than 40 years. It's known locally as New Zealand's most famous crime, even to this day. So in an interview, Jackson said, In the 1950s, Pauline and Juliet were branded as the most evil people. What they had done seemed without rational explanation. The people could only assume that there was something terribly wrong with their psyches. The press labeled them the lesbian schoolgirl killers. The public believed it was a case of insanity and that homosexuality was a mental illness one could recover from. End quote. So this drove Jackson to create a more compassionate and authentic version of the story. So to do this, they undertook massive research. They found and interviewed former classmates and teachers from Christchurch Girls High School. They spoke with neighbors, family friends, police, psychologists, and even Juliet's lawyer, all of whom shed light on the background and context of the case. Even with that, the main records um, that they sourced were Pauline's diaries, where, like you said, she recorded daily entries about her intense friendship with Juliet. And Jackson even said that 100% of the voiceover in the movie is based on her diaries directly. And the diaries were never published, and her father destroyed them.
1: Oh my gosh, I didn't know that.
0: So, interestingly, he never tried to connect with either woman. Um, And he said, this is another quote, we respect them. We didn't want to invade their privacy. If it was me, I wouldn't want to see the movie. Yeah. Sounds fair. Fair, yeah. (laughs) So the film opened in 1994 at the 51st Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Silver Lion and became one of the best-received films of the year, even earning an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And so this was huge. New Zealand cinema had never cracked... The mainstream so it also made top 10 lists for the year in time the guardian the sydney morning herald and the new zealand herald after heavenly creatures the crime then made its way to the simpsons <laughs> <laughs> <Of> <laughs> the episode <laughs> lisa the drama queen and i checked that episode was seen by 5.75 million viewers during the first airing
1: oh my gosh
0: um then a lifetime movie called mystery weekend was strongly based on the case. In 2010, a play, Folly a Jew, based on the murder, was released. And then in 2011, the documentary, Reflections of the Past. In 2013, Evie Wilde's award-winning novel, All the Birds, Singing, was released, and it was inspired by the crime. And most recently, BBC Radio 4 produced a play for radio about the case called The Christchurch Murder in 2018. But that's not where the story ends. This story has its own twist involving best-selling UK crime writer Anne Perry. So Perry, if you don't know her work, has written more than 60 books and sold more than 26 million copies. And it includes her critically acclaimed Thomas Pitt and William Monk series. So in 1994, she was publishing her 14th book when her world got turned upside down. So with the upcoming release of the film Heavenly Creatures, a journalist in New Zealand revealed that Perry was, in fact, Juliet Holm. home. And the day the news broke, Perry's literary agent told her boss, quote, I hope you're sitting down because there's something we didn't know about Anne. So wow. this was a secret that she kept. She had her new life, her identity, and then this journalist basically outed her as this famous author. Yeah. So in an interview with The Guardian, Perry talked about her five years spent at Mount Eden Women's Prison in Auckland, which is supposedly the toughest in the Southern Hemisphere. Wow. She was the only child in the prison. She was kept in solitary confinement for three months. She said, quote, It was cold. There were rats, canvas sheets, and calico underwear. I had to wash out my sanitary towels by hand, and they put me on to do physical labor until I passed out. And even with that, she calls her time in prison. Another quote. The best thing that could have happened. It was there that I went down on my knees and repented. That's how I survived the whole time while others cracked up. I seem to be the only one saying, I am guilty and I am where I should be. So... Perry is currently living in Hollywood in order to more effectively promote films based on her novels. And Pauline Parker is living in a small town in England and running a children's horse riding school.
1: Incredible. Incredible. I mean, okay, so it was so hard for me not to talk about (laughs) that part of it. um, Because that is the part that fascinates me the most I mean the crime fascinates me but like I said having been a teenage girl I can see the you know I don't know I feel like I can see the building blocks that led to that horrific thing but then the after and so at one point I went down this rabbit hole I think it was one of the kids was a baby and I was like up late pumping or breastfeeding or something and you know uh-huh. like reading on my phone and that's when I think I found out about Anne Perry. Before I I saw the movie, you know, I read about it, whatever, but I think I didn't know about that piece of it. And I just got a little obsessed. And so I actually know that Pauline has moved on from the UK. So some journalists like tracked her down there. Uh-huh. So she she was there with the horse farm, then she moved to another place. But now she lives in the Orkney Islands, um, which is, like, as far away as you can be from people and be in yeah. the UK. <laughs> but I, I even made – so I don't know. what My thing with maps, I made, like, a Google map <laughs> with, like, the locations. And I was like, okay, next time I take a trip to the UK, I want to go and, like, see these places. Because I was having a hard time believing that they didn't – connect with one another later in life in any way not like Uh in a nefarious way but just like I don't know how could you not like just out of curiosity or I don't know what so I was like I'm gonna go and I'm gonna see how long it takes basically like that meme of the woman with in like strings and (laughs) you know how it all connects I was like I'm gonna I got to figure, like, I don't know. There's something about this that totally lights up that part of my brain. But really fascinating, like, how you move on from something like that.
0: I think being so young helps probably. Mm-hmm. Like, not that the trauma doesn't submit in similar or even very different ways. But, like, I, since they were so young and when they got out of prison, they were so young. Mm-hmm. And I think the world of the 1960s was just so anonymous and forgiving that you could right. start a new life. Right. Whereas right. now that would be infinitely harder.
1: I mean, impossible. It's basically like Casey Anthony. Like, how does she go anywhere? And I mean, I know she does, but like, you know, how do you function With that level of notoriety, and they definitely had that level of notoriety to the extent that it was possible at that time. But I also find, and I didn't want to go into it too much, like, in my part of things, but the piece about were they, weren't they, like, I just, I don't under, I mean, I do understand it, but I don't understand, like, the fascination with it and how people got so fixated on that part of it and how nobody could believe that people could have a connection that didn't involve sex. And, I mean, maybe they were. Maybe they were lovers. I don't know. And and it doesn't really matter. But, like, what interests me is, like, how society... And I think you, you, you said it very perfectly. Like, it was a way for society to take something that it viewed as evil and connect it with these kids who they thought were evil and, like, make sense of something they couldn't understand. I don't know. That part really... Ugh.
0: Yeah, I mean, because... We're all still looking for the boogeyman, even especially thinking the 1950s and what we know now. But like, even in last week's full episode with the Gainesville Ripper, like, like okay, here's this man. He's got scars on his face. We know he has intense mental illness. It's got to be him because people just can't see out, and so. Anything that explains it easily, easily and neatly, I think, is what they were looking for. And they're like, "Oh well, that's it. These aren't normal girls;
1: they're lesbians." They're lesbians. <laughs> that's the part that, and I'm, I, I'm laughing at how absurd it is. Not because it's funny, but like imagine a world, or imagine like living in a brain where lesbians are your boogeyman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's absurd. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know but this whole this case for whatever reason is just one of those that i find infinitely fascinating and in reading about it this time i found one little detail that i thought was so uh freaky not surprising but apparently there was a discussion at the time of do they And I think maybe they tried to use this defense of insanity of some kind. But, you know, we talk about like whether that insanity was linked to being gay or not being gay, like there was talk of them being insane, even if it was just temporarily or whatever. And I read a thing that was saying that if they had been found not guilty by reason of insanity, they would have been committed indefinitely, like, a.k.a. for life to a mental institution, and that the treatment at that time would have been a full frontal lobotomy.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So in being convicted of, like, premeditated murder and being called sane actually saved them from both being lobotomized.
0: And then I read Perry in an interview said they weren't even allowed to speak in the court that she and um, Pauline never spoke. Like they didn't testify. And so the way she framed it, which could be the truth, but was that they just had to sit there and listen to all these lies about them and they weren't allowed to defend themselves. Crazy. But they did still murder her. (laughs) Like it's not that they're innocent. It's just examining the... um, all of the different pieces.
1: Right. And how much culpability can you assign to literal children again? But so much of it is influenced by society and your views on people, because I know that there are a lot of times when I see criminals now for things that are children, but because of one thing or another, they seem evil and depraved and, you know, like they do need to be locked up forever. And I don't know. It's a really hard one. Um, I don't know where I come down in juveniles that commit really heinous crimes. It's it's a tough one.
0: Yeah, and then even further, if they have that like trifecta of hurting animals, pyromania, bedwetting, and that's elevating. Like, what do you do knowing that a person is likely a psychopath?
1: Right, right. And in this case, I mean. I have to say and maybe again I'm I'm influenced by stereotypes and assumptions and things but there is still a part of me that looks at Juliet and looks at the pictures and sees Pauline looking sheepish and weird and Juliet looking kind of glamorous and beautiful and is like was Juliet like in control is she a psychopath like did she manipulate the situation you know and again recognizing that I, I have, you know, I've been socialized a certain way and I have ideas about young, beautiful, like temptress, like that whole mm-hmm. like thing versus like the strange, awkward. And, you know, it's just when you see it like this and it's removed in time, it's so easy, I think, to see kind of your templates that you have in your mind of behavior and what to expect and how to assign blame and how to assign meaning to things. Um, easier than when it's something current. Well, and when you think
0: about like the charisma. Mm -hmm. So again, not not calling either of these women psychopaths. Just a hypothesis. (laughs) But like (laughs) that level of charisma that a lot of like psychopath narcissist folks do have Mm-hmm. Um, the dry it can have when it's turned on you. Like, it wouldn't be impossible that there could have been one person sort of pulling the shots and one person going along. Yeah. And they were so involved in that delusion, like, it, you know, creating your own language. Like, it's no wonder um, she's written more than 60 books. Like, you can see that, like, world-building yeah it's just yeah it's just really interesting and weird and there will never be an answer but I had the same thought like is there any way they really didn't see each other but it it does appear as though
1: yeah and I read other folks who did track them down and did try to talk to them and maybe were successful in this and you know are convinced that they haven't been in touch and again just a purely superficial view of it based on what I can find, but also, you know, all of my biases that I have. Pauline seems to really truly have been repentant and she's lived a life of repentance. And her sister talks about her way of life as being her penance for what she did, being removed from society and all of that. And that seems really genuine. And then, you know, Juliet, I don't know, it's weird to go on to be a crime writer (laughs) when that is your past. And, you know, I found some interviews with her and quotes where and I mean, again, these are taken obviously out of these are poll quotes that people pick out of probably long conversations. But in one of them, it seemed like she got upset and she was like, I just want to stop talking about it. Um, and it's over and I don't know, just kind of like a callousness. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand I can see like she's in her eighties now and this was 70 years ago or whatever. Um, and she's tired of talking about it, but it's like, you chose a public life. People, you went for many, many years with people not knowing and now people know and they're curious and totally. there's something really cold and calculating seeming about some of the stuff that I've read from her, but yeah, I mean, there's no way to really know without even knowing a psychopath you don't know always, but
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Another interesting one.
1: Super interesting. I could talk about this one all (laughs) night.
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, if you want to, pay us through some sort of platform to listen to us talk about this all night we could but for now this is a free podcast that you're enjoying so we're gonna call it a day I believe
1: yes but thank you for coming along on this ride with us and indulging kind of one of our pet cases and personal passions that's weird but there it is
0: (laughs) I have and a as always, passion
1: for this crime. Okay, I'm going to stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. fucking Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode,
1: visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in.
0: This has been a Facts from Janet production.